Hey guys, my name is Alex, and you're listening to the Thousand Movie Project Podcast. At the end of last week, I finished the very rough draft of a novel that I've been working on for a few months. I don't have a title for it yet, but I imagine over the next few weeks as I go through the second draft, something will come to mind, ideally. Whatever the case, I jumped into today's day of study, which as I mentioned last week, is my Sunday ritual, and it starts at like 8 a.m., where I just read through a couple of periodicals that I've like pointedly avoided over the course of the week, and then I try to read a couple of comic books to cleanse my palate, and I do this all on Sunday morning, usually over the course of like three or five or six hours. For the past couple months, I've occupied the first couple hours of every Sunday with writing for the novel, but now that's done. And so because it's finally done, and this is my first way open day of study in a while, I jumped into it feeling like an empty vessel, kind of, which sounds so weird and it's like a really cliche way of putting it. But it, as, yeah, I was writing a novel while at the same time doing podcast scripts and blog posts, and so I've been feeling for a few months now like I was just drained of things. Not, and not drained of energy. It wasn't, it wasn't exhausting. It's just, it felt like everything that had that I'd sort of crammed into my head during this weirdly intense period of reading right after I turned 30, like as I was wrapping up that second ebook that I published in April, it seemed like everything that I crammed into my head in that period suddenly came pouring out with all this shit that I was writing. And so while the day of study on Sunday is normally like a, a place for me to sort of replenish my coffers and, and put interesting shit into my head that will like carry me through the creative work of the week, at the moment, it felt like, I feel like I'm repaying some some huge deficit of material. Like, I feel completely drained of ideas. So yeah, I jumped into it with a little extra moxie today. And uh, let's get into it! Also, as a caveat that I'm gonna do for a while with these episodes, a lot of this is off the cuff this week. Like, normally the episodes are scripted, or they've got like a very detailed outline. In this case, I'm just, like, I have bullet points about the things that I read that were particularly interesting, but for the most part, it's very off the cuff, so it's way less organized than usual. If you are starting here, if you've never heard this podcast before, like, don't. Go somewhere else, go listen to one of those episodes with a very long title. But yeah, anyways, this, yeah, okay, let's go, okay, so we're gonna start. I went through a two-week-old issue of The New Yorker. It's two weeks old and it feels like the world moves so quickly now, but the, but the initial of the, like, the four or five talk of the town pieces is always political or just about the most pressing social issue domestic issue of the day and this week it was about or two weeks ago it was about the january 6th commission and the testimony of those four police officers and it's so weird because you realize like yeah the move si the news cycle moves so quickly and yet even though those hearings about the january 6th riot insurrection whatever you want to call it even though it's kind of distant from my mind, I realize, like, I haven't digested it. <laughs> like, I haven't processed how fucking enraging that story is. And this was about, you know, the officer's scathing testimony and how it's being dismissed by people who totally endorse the idea of Blue Lives Matter and the thin blue line and so forth. I guess they're considering these, these cops' testimonies to be heretical or somehow a, a betrayal. I don't know. Fuck it. Anyways, moving on. <laughs> 
But there was this profile in the middle of the issue um, of an artist. His primary trade is as a painter, but he's also done uh, recording work, video work. And But this, this profile was amazing. And it was like, without a doubt, the most inspiring and motivating piece of art writing that I've read in a while with the, well, we're gonna get, anyways, but that theme of inspiration and motivation is gonna come up again in a minute. The artist's name is Kerry Marshall. He's a black artist and he explores issues of, you know, life as a black person in America. He touches on a bunch of things um, having to do with the art world, having to do with his own inspirations, but he... something that stood out to me is something that he said which is very similar to what was said in a profile from last week's issue. Uh, they were talking... a profile of a of a young adult writer named uh, Jason Reynolds. Uh, what, what they mentioned is that the, one of the things they're trying to capture in their work is this is the idea that black people's lives are defined generally in popular media by trauma and like violence and hardship. And the reason it stood out to me in kind of an uncomfortable way is that like it's definitely true for me. Like if you tell me that there's a new show on TV and it's really good and it's about like the quote unquote black experience, I'm inclined to just assume that it's going to be about segregation or civil rights or slavery. Like it's going to be a portrait of oppression. And I've read some stuff in the past about how it's kind of like I don't know, not torture porn, but just, I don't know, some kind of, like, it's almost pornographic in how it just loads the pain, a depiction of pain onto its black characters. But I think part of the reason that I, I jumped to that conclusion is because, and this might, like, I think white critics tend to go above and beyond in their coverage of those kinds of narratives. And while a lot of, the, a lot of those narratives of sort of black suffering, like, the praise is legitimate, but I think the volume of the praise and the ubiquity of the praise is stemmed by a network of white critics who are trying to say like, hey, look, I see this, I, I know my, my credit, my ancestors didn't, but I do, which is fine. It's, it's, it's helping people, helping black artists get their stories exposed and, and they're, they're cultivating an audience. It helps them to, you know, finance their subsequent projects. It's, it's all good, but it, is, it, does, it does show that I've got kind of a stilted perception of things. And so what both of these guys are talking about, both Reynolds and uh, Marshall, is that like the quote-unquote black experience can be a story about pretty mundane daily life or like some kind of triumph that has nothing to do with race except for the fact that the cast is black, that they live in America and black American households or workplaces have as much nuance and personality as do as does a predominantly Cuban workplace or a predominantly Vietnamese workplace. So that part got me thinking about like my own, as I said, stilted perspective on things. Um, something to be more mindful of. But also just the samples of like Kerry Marshall's art that they showed were like incredibly powerful and impressive. Like I'm gonna read you this little column from, you know, like the New Yorker is always laid out in three columns. So there's this one column where they describe some work that Marshall did that depicts the public housing projects. His subject was the public housing projects that had been introduced in the 1920s to get low-income families out of urban slums. A well-intentioned experiment that poor planning and, and spreading poverty in the drug wars turned into a nationwide disaster. This was before the projects were overloaded with people who were out of work, he said. I would mark the transformation to some time after the 1974 recession, when the cycles of poverty set in. After that, nobody wanted to live in the projects, but when we were there, everybody did. Marshall's tapestry-like paintings show well-maintained buildings, neatly dressed black people gardening and enjoying one another's company, children running or biking to school, lots of songbirds, blue sky, and green lawns. The garden project paintings are overabundant, particularly lush, particularly rich in surface and mark-making. The sky is always a little bit too bright of a blue, and the sun is always beaming just a little too gaily. And why all of the too-muchness? 
I wanted to evoke some of the hope that the project started with, but also to demonstrate a little bit of the despair. And the way I did that was to go over the top with the Disneyland fantasy and the bluebirds. The gangs and the drugs and the poverty that overwhelmed the project are what we remember, not the utopian dreams that inspired them. As his work would demonstrate again and again in the years to come, Marshall was not interested in depicting black trauma. He wanted to show that there has always been more to the black experience in America than oppression and humiliation, that somehow, in spite of everything, black lives have been and can be rewarding, diverse, and full of joy. Which I thought was fucking great. Which incidentally brought to mind, like, I've been drawing a lot lately, and I've been keeping it to myself, because I kind of suck at it for now, although I am definitely tracking mild progress over a long period of time. But reading this profile has made me want to do more of it. Like, I was reading it at a coffee shop, and I was like, fuck this, I want to go home and, like, open up the pad. Uh, but something I've realized about trying to draw, trying to do it as someone who's not naturally talented in that vein, is that when I'm approaching it, like, the act of drawing has to be the thing itself. What I've got to be sitting down to do, like, mentally, my motive has to be drawing rather than generating a piece of art. I don't know if that makes sense. What I know is that, like, if my intention is to sit there and generate something beautiful, like, I'm gonna get flustered and pissed and it's gonna ruin my day because there's no fucking chance that I'm gonna, like, draw or sketch, paint, and whatever, anything that someone would want to look at. But then, like, so I, okay, so I keep reading the article and Mar Kerry Marshall's a bit older now. He, like, sort of built and did his, his eye, ca his attention catching work in the 90s. And so right now, so far removed from that, you know, as the prices of his pieces have gone up, he's able to do his art as a living. And toward the end of the article, they talk about how he's embarrassed by how much his work sells for. And they made particular reference to a $22 million painting that he did a few years ago that Sean Combs bought. Incidentally, before I get into the money thing, another, another art piece of his that they described is called... Um, it's, I don't know if you would call it performance art, it's called Heirlooms and Accessories, where he was looking at photos of lynchings, and he saw in the background there were like, this is from like the 20s, there were three white women who were like smiling and celebrating the lynching, and he was like, okay, these three people are complicit in murder. So he, he cut out their faces from the photo, and he put them in lockets. It seems like cyclical and vengeful, but also just kind of beautiful, is the idea that like here are these three women who were celebrating a lynching and now they were now their memories are are hanging around a person's neck just the concept is very mind-bending and, and and i've been thinking about it all day but anyway so i went through the whole profile in the new yorker thinking about like the the passion of the artist and and how rewarding it is just to create shit and then that final note about like how he's selling a piece for 22 million dollars got me thinking about the financial aspect which is a considerably bleaker horizon in the contemplation of the arts. I mentioned in the past couple episodes that I attended a funeral earlier in the month up in Vero Beach. Uh, that was a couple weeks back and in order to go I had to miss out on a couple days of work and the reason that I'm able to work so few days is because I work doubles. So missing two days of work means losing four shifts. So over the coming week, I'm going to be, be picking up a bunch of shifts. I'll probably be working close to like 50 hours this week, which is fine, because again, I just finished that book, and working in the restaurant, has it entails such sensory overload and such busyness that it's, it's like a forceful clearing of your head, which is exactly what I'm looking to do at the moment. So I'm convinced this is going to be a good thing. Not only is it going to be a good thing for my headspace, I'm grateful that I have the kind of work situation where in the event that I need money, I can just sort of pick up more shifts but there's also a part of me that kind of resents it, 
especially because the other shifts that I'm going to be picking up are server shifts, which in my mind, for some reason, it, it constitutes a weird step down in status from being a bartender. I guess because, like, a bartender can stand there and talk with you, and the bartender is seen, is conversed with. Uh, you as the customer get an idea of who the bartender is as a human being, whereas if you're a server, you're running to a table, greeting them, taking their order, you're putting it in, you're dropping the order off. It's not as social. The server does not have, in the eyes of the customer, as much an identity as the bartender. So I, I, there's a little weird ego crisis about the, the idea of doing so many serving shifts this week, but on the subject of money, I wanted to get ba touch back on that motivation, inspiration thing I mentioned earlier. So I don't, I don't like to mention it, but I do occasionally go through a spell in the last like six or seven days where I watch a lot of like motivation, like super cringy bro motivation things on YouTube. And it does work to a degree, like it gives me energy or it lets me like, I don't know, clear my head of, of the technical elements of trying to get to the next step of some kind of pursuit and to just think about my energy. Like it's easier to take action if you can relegate the complexities and the nuances of your situation to just like these bite-sized fucking affirmations like hustle or um i don't know something along those lines so but generally i'll watch like gary vaynerchuk stuff or what montages I, I i'm embarrassed to even mention what they are but if i if i really got an appetite for it as i for some reason had this weekend um i will i'll get kind of promiscuous with what I listen to, and um, I'll just listen around. I'll let I'll let the YouTube suggestions play out in order, and I'll see uh, of all these motivational guys who have millions of views on YouTube. I'll see which ones sort of vibe with me. And yesterday, I finally happened to watch a video with the guy who wrote Rich Dad Poor Dad. His name is his name is Richard Kiyosaki. And I've seen Rich Dad Poor Dad everywhere. Every, I, it's one of those ubiquitous books like Tuesdays with Maury. For some reason, I never picked it up, even though I do tend to be curious about like the very, very popular self-help books like The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck or The 10X Rule or the Gary Vaynerchuk books. So I listened to the interview because it was playing in one of these playlists, and I was endeared by what the guy was saying. It's a fairly recent conversation, but it's also kind of repulsive because he was talking about how like when he was young, he had a rich dad and a poor dad. Not sure what that means. I don't know if it means he had like a stepdad and a, and a, his biological father or what or a mentor or whatever. But he was talking about how he got he had this he had like a fairly well paying job and he got his first paycheck, and and like he gets this paycheck and he shows it to he's so proud and he shows it to his poor dad. Um, Right away, it seems like there's an issue with the fact that he is completely identifying some kind of father figure in terms of what he earns. Uh, yeah, I have two dads. This is the poor one. <laughs> but his dad backs him up in his excitement about the check. And he's like, oh, it's great. You've got this, uh, you know, steady income. Now you can go and you can start your family, whatever. But his rich dad greets his enthusiasm and he's like, oh, you got a paycheck and a steady job. Like, that's awful because now you've got a master. Like, now you are a slave to the company and the efforts that you put toward your work, which are going to be gargantuan, they're going to con you know consume a third of your life, those efforts are going to be exercised in the service of something other than you and your life. You are serving the big, fucking, indiscriminately voracious entity that is a business, and you are expendable, you're disposable, they don't give a fuck about you. So the guy goes on to champion his rich dad's... <laughs> <laughs> my two dads here's the rich one his rich dad's advice and uh, his rich which was to go out and become an entrepreneur to not have an employer to not have that safety net so he becomes an entrepreneur and he buys properties and he flips them he invests in businesses he he launches businesses from the ground up or that's what he's 
implying. And he says in the interview, if my government has a problem with me or I have a problem with my government, I go to another country because they always need entrepreneurs too and I'll do just fine there. And I was in this like bro motivational mood. And so it sounded like really badass. And there's there's an eternal adolescent in my chest that still kind of flushes and gets excited at that kind of like dick swinging rhetoric that the cowboy language that you'll go and you'll trod your own path. You'll build your own business. You'll uh, girls don't like me. I'll build a woman with my hands. But then he but then he goes on to talk about his doctor and he's like, my doctor came up to me and he was so happy. And he was like, Richard, I finally made a million dollars. I'm so happy. It's always been a dream. And so Robert Kiyosaki says that's great and of the million dollars you earned in your practice how much did you take home and the doctor goes I took home about four hundred thousand dollars and Kiyosaki like it's a video interview and so he affects like humility here and he says now four hundred thousand dollars is a lot of money and he says this with his eyebrows up and like his shoulders shrugged like he's giving you some you know the little bit of praise that you earn he looks like he's looking at one of my drawings but then he follows up that faux humility with this coy little smile and he goes, but when I make a million dollars, I keep a million dollars. The IRS doesn't take my money because I'm smart and I buy a million dollar property when I make a million dollars and I write it off as an expense. So I'm accumulating wealth without accumulating income. And the interviewer you can see is eating this shit up like fucking candy and he's like squinting and he's nodding and smiling like he's hearing sage advice. And I myself, for a minute, because I was in that dick swinging rhetorical mood, was like, oh wow, that's really smart, that's cool, I didn't know you could do that. But I did that for a few minutes and then I was like, wait, what about roads and like food stamps and social security? Like why is this dude boasting about the fact that he's not giving back? to the country that allows his megalodon ambition to stalk the waters. So that was pretty dark and I switched it. Um, but I switched it like I just hit next and it went to the next recommended video. And since I'm watching this video and I watched most of it, YouTube recommends something similar. And I realized suddenly when I looked at like the length of the playlist, like I was in this robust pool of motivational videos where it isn't, they're not promote, they're not trying to propel you toward virtue or self-actualization or athletic achievement or artistic output. What they're pushing you toward is the acquisition of money because implicit in the promise that you can be rich is the promise that people will like you, which is really what all the people watching these videos are looking for. And you realize that money in the eyes of these, of the video, of the person who made this video, of the person speaking, and of the six or seven million viewers, money in their eyes is the equivalent of all those aforementioned things, of virtue, of affection, um, you know, athletic prowess, sexual prowess, whatever. And then it goes to this other dude, uh, Dan Pena, who seems like a, I watched two videos of him, and he seems like a monster, like a legit human, blood-chugging baby thief. He does this interview where he's like, deri he's deriding the fact that um, a 30-year-old man, like this is like 50 years ago, he's apparently found some data that, 30, that 50 years ago, a 30-year-old man's handshake had about like 108 pounds of pressure per square inch and that now it's like half that. Who the fuck knows where he got that data? It sounds pretty dubious. He, he makes it sound like U.S. census takers in 1971 would like knock on your door and then when you opened it, they'd be like, okay, how much money do you make? All right. How many people live in this house? All right. Also, <laughs> but you can't crush this apple with your bare hand. <laughs> Which reminds me, actually, I did one time see a story where 
an old man, a former boxer, was was in a courtroom for something, and in order to show that he was still strong, he's like 83 years old, he uh, cru- he squeezed an apple with his bare hand, crushed it, and, and there's a photo of him standing in the middle of the courtroom, and, you know, the pulpy apple juice thing is sort of gushing out from between his fingers, and the apple is crushed in his hand over a wastebasket, and I remember watching, looking at that photo and thinking, like... <laughs> I wonder if this had anything to do with the case. <laughs> kind of hoping it didn't. Like, he just stood up and he was like, Your Honor, <laughs> look what I can do. <laughs> Getting back to Dan Pena, though. But then he goes on from there and, like, he quotes Andrew Carnegie or some other turn-of-the-century millionaire who said that the best thing that can ever happen to a child is that they're born into poverty. <laughs> and he goes, I agree, I agree with that. No, 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 I agree with that. His, his, his way of speaking is, is very much like chirping, like a verbal stabbing gesture. So obviously what Carnegie um, was arguing is that poverty makes a person industrious and grateful and humble and scrappy and tough and whatever. That is not true. Like maybe, I'm sh- obviously there are examples of a few like fiercely driven people who had, who had a rights, who had a support network and they had an eye for opportunity and they were able to grab onto those opportunities and to work really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel and so they were able to like dig themselves out of whatever quagmire they were born into. But I cannot imagine finding any data to support the idea that a child's lack of basic necessities will do anything but fuck them up for the rest of their lives. But here's this fucking dude just it's good for them it's good for them to be poor like it's good that there are poor people because then i can be what i am which is kind of like the crux of how all these dudes get rich is like if someone is obvious if a very rich person is charging lots of money to hold a seminar where he explains to the working class how they can become rich that that person is getting rich off of telling you how to be rich they aren't actually rich to begin with and obviously they also have no vest it is it is against their interests for you to go out and become rich because then you would stop buying their material. Anyway, that goes kind of off track. (laughs) There were two essays in the New York Times that were interesting. The first one was about um, how we were, everyone was probably miserable before the pandemic too. And it made an interesting point where it was like a pandemic prompted, forced people into an isolation where they realized that They've kind of been unhappy for a really long time, but they've been numbing themselves to that unhappiness with like going to work and working long days. Now you couldn't do that. Or going to bars with all their friends. Now you couldn't do that. So they were forced to sit alone and sort of take inventory of what their life had amounted to, the sort of situation that they had crafted and then put themselves in. And so a lot of them were having these very affirming come to Jesus moments. It was a cool article that I think just did a, did a great job of putting into words what everyone's been kind of feeling. But then speaking of come to Jesus, there was an article and it was so weird. Like, I guess I understand why they posted it on Sunday, but I just don't understand how the editorial powers that be thought this was a fucking good idea. There's an essay about why now, more than ever, we should believe in God, like that God exists. Like, there's so much going on in the world that points us toward, I don't know, like God making sense. And I'm not an avowed atheist or anything. I just really don't think about like celestial matters at all. I'm sure that will change with age and I will go through crises and I will ultimately, you know, chisel out some sort of theological conviction. But at the moment, I don't have one. And he's he's saying a bunch of spacey kind of phantomy shit. And then you, he does this little rhetorical maneuver that I thought was interesting where after ta- after his 
opening gets increasingly spacey and increasingly like, you know, white wafer, um, you know, drink this wine with me, um, he, he collapses into sounding incredibly logical with this paragraph. Listen to how this sounds after his like very, you know, face-to-face conversational approach to, to faith. I do not mean to claim that 500 years of scientific progress have left the world's religions untouched or unchallenged. Of course not. The Copernican Revolution overthrew a medieval cosmology with a tidier celestial hierarchy than our own. Indeed it did, yes. Darwinism created still unresolved problems for the Christian doctrine of the fall of man. And then he goes on with this weirdly over-eloquent polysyllabic breakdown of shit. The great project of modern physics, for instance, has led to speculation about a multiverse in part because it has repeatedly confirmed the strange fittedness of our universe to human life. If science has discredited certain specific ideas about how God structured the natural world, it has also made the mathematical beauty of physical laws, as well as their seeming calibration for the emergence of life, much clearer to us than they were to people 500 years ago. I, what he's saying is like the, the strange fittedness of the universe for us. It's not that the universe was handcrafted to accommodate us, it's that we are a bunch of like mermy space jism that was fired into this rock as the rock was maturing. And then we little cum germs, human beings, we evolved with it. So did giraffes, so did donkeys. We all have something that makes us like capable of living here. And it just seemed like such a flagrantly manipulative little rhetorical maneuver. And also, I feel like there's a very sinister other foot that's supposed to drop after the first foot of you accepting this man's premise, which is like, yeah, everything is a little crazy. Now is the time, really, when you think about it, that we should start believing in God. and, And here's what that other shoe is. Because while I am willing to entertain for a moment the idea that this dude, that like, the New York Times is backlogged, with opinion pieces, evergreen opinion pieces that they want to publish. It is conceivable that this dude wrote his essay six months ago, seven months ago, when the world was a different place. Maybe he even wrote it two or three years ago. Let's say, hypothetically, he wrote it, like, in the past week. And then let's say, hypothetically, that his essay succeeds. Well, let's say, okay, everyone who reads the New York Times now believes in God. What's the next step in the discourse? Well, the next step in the discourse is obviously, you have to... Let's look at what's going on in the world. Fucking... Global pandemic kills a million people. Check. A fucking catastrophic earthquake in Haiti is, like, kills thousands of people and completely undoes all of the progress that they have made in trying to rebuild from their last catastrophic earthquake. Number two. Check. The government in Afghanistan completely topples to a fucking medieval cult, and there's... we were faced with the impending subjugation of millions of women. Check. If we are to accept on the basis of current events that God exists, it would seem, by extension, that he's very upset. <laughs> like, God is really not happy with us right now. And then it seems like the next level of the discourse is, and why is he unhappy? Why do you think God is unhappy? Maybe it's because you buy condoms. Maybe it's because gay people are getting married. Why don't we look at the book? Uh, it just seemed like a really, like, uh, the, the piece was very magnanimous, and it seemed like a dude who was really just blue-skying, and he was trying to just, like, you know, thinking out loud, gonna throw something out there, food for thought, on your Sunday over your cornflakes. But it just, the, the premise that on the front page of the New York Times, as there is a religious-backed, overtly murderous coup taking place in the Middle East, that they would, I don't know, that they would 
publish an essay encouraging us to now, why don't we start believing in God too? It seemed pretty sinister and ill-timed. But anyways, I think I'll wrap it up there. <laughs> That's been, uh, the, the, those have been the conclusions from my day of study. I hope it's prompted you to read the newspaper. <laughs> anyways, I'm gonna go read a comic book or something. Thanks for listening. Talk to you next time.